You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, y'all, did we put some courage in one another? Did it happen? Did we do it? Maybe, okay, a few of us there. Let's open the book together, Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one is where we'll be today. If you're, uh, if you're just jumping in with us, we are in the beginning of this series on the book of Colossians, and we're walking it through just verse by verse, kind of the, the norm here at New City is we just wanna preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, because one, it's a great way for you to learn the Bible and actually understand the, the context and the story and the meaning of scripture. Um, and two, it's just all good. We just don't wanna skip any of it. And so what we're gonna do is just march our way through this book. We will take um, a uh, brief break uh, going into the Advent season and then uh, we'll finish up. So. Really, really glad that we're here. Today, we're going to be um, finishing out chapter one and going into the beginning of chapter two. So if I could get you, before you get too comfortable, to go ahead and stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll read this text and we will dig in. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24, it says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. In Christ. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So at New City, we talk a lot about saturating the city with the gospel. We talk about, we want, we want to see every workplace, every relationship, every neighborhood um, imprinted and uh, transformed by the good news of Christ's resurrection. That's what we want to see happen. Now, the way that we go about that is by filling the city with disciples. 
It's by us growing together into the likeness of Jesus, and then we get scattered all over the city. This, this moment right here is what we call the church gathered, right? And then a few minutes later, we're going to have the church scattered. We're going to have us all over the city. So we want to see people, disciples, taking the rule and reign of Christ wherever they go. Where Jesus' people show up, they just handle life differently. And they handle conflict at work with the, the ethics of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount running in the background. They, they parent their children to follow the king. They take their money and their sexuality and their hobbies and their friendships. Um, and they submit all those to God and they're driven by the power of his spirit as they leave those out. Every aspect of a disciple's life, more and more, little by little over time, comes under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Now, if you've tried for more than five minutes, mm -hmm. you know that becoming that kind of person takes training, it takes time and community, and ultimately it takes the power of God from on high, does it not? That process of training, of time with others in community, and the power of God, that is a process of what we might call simply discipleship. Have you ever zoomed back and asked the question, what really is the goal of Christian discipleship? I mean, how could we answer that question? There's so many things we could rightly fill in the blank with. We go, discipleship is, um, it's for God's glory. Yes and amen, that's true. Um, it's for faithfulness to the task, regardless of the fruit. Yes and amen. Um, if, we, uh, if we even take it from this sort of impersonal, what's the goal out here, but say, what is the, the goal for discipleship in my life? Like, what do I long to see happen? If you're like me, you probably fill in a hundred different character flaws where you just go, man, if I could just change X thing, then I'd really have a bead on being a disciple. If I could just get this under control, get a handle on this issue or this problem or this vice, maybe that's the goal. Here's what Paul does in today's text. He takes all those things that are flooding our minds right now about what discipleship is, and he bundles them all together and more, I would argue. The stuff we're thinking of and more, he bundles them all up into one word, maturity. Maturity, that's the word. The goal of discipleship, most simply put, is maturity. Don't you long for maturity? Actually, even if you're just looking over the fence of Christianity, you, you probably get this, right? Don't you remember being young and going, gosh, I just can't wait till I'm old. And then you got old and you were like, this stinks. <laughs> For me, I remember, I was like, I, I just want to turn 12 because when I turn 12, I can finally ride my bike all the way down Church Street. I don't have to stop at this ditch. I can go all the way, right? And then you get to 12 and you go, oh, if I can just get a little further right. Um, maturity is progressive. It goes over times. But gosh, don't you just long for maturity? If you've been following Jesus for a minute, like, you find yourself going, gosh, I am so motivated by, like, guilt and duty, and I really want to be motivated by the love of Christ. Like, I want that to be true of me. Why isn't it true of me yet? Or, gosh, I just, I just want to long for the things of God without having to have sort of this knockdown, drag-out wrestling match with myself every single time. How long is it going to be this way? Um, man, I just want to be steady. I don't want to be so emotionally thrown around 
by the difficulties of life. I want to really trust that my father's ruling stuff. I want to be mature. Simply put, I, I found myself reading this text and I was going, I just like to just not be a spaz all the time and just follow Jesus. You ever feel like that? Maturity is a holy longing. It's an invitation from God where he says, let's grow together. Let's grow together. Here's the problem though. Paul knew this. He wants us to know today. You can't microwave maturity. As much as you want to, you can't microwave it. So the question remains, how in the world do we get there? How do we move toward maturity? The Bible, this text tells us today, and here's the main point. God uses gospel ministry to yield gospel maturity. I mean, think about this for a minute. Paul, he spends all this passage right here describing the nature of his ministry or his service to these people. The first time I read this, I was like, is this just like a humble brag section where he's got to like, oh, hey, here's my ministry. I've, I've suffered for you, all this stuff. No, 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 he's not doing that at all. He wants them to know that his ministry is for them, that he actually wants to encourage them and bless them and help them and be with them. Why? So that they can grow up into maturity, so that they're not so thrown around by their lives. Believe it or not, my friends, the Apostle Paul is not the only one in this room who has a ministry. Ministry ain't just for me, it ain't just for Paul, it's for you. You, Christian, have a ministry. Not just pastors or staff members, we have all been given, every single one of us, the ministry of reconciliation according to 2 Corinthians 5. To tell the world that uh, there has been a peace offering made from heaven in the person and work of Jesus. You have an assignment from Christ with Christ to minister, to serve others toward maturity. Here's what's really cool. We're about to get into the text, but I need to say a couple more things. One, someone needs your ministry to help them grow into maturity. Your specific contribution, God wired it in such a way that they need your ministry to grow into gospel maturity. And get this too, you need theirs. As much as they need your ministry, you need their ministry. That's the relationship between Paul and these churches, this mutual upbuilding toward maturity. And so just two, two points today. I want us to walk through and look at what does faithful gospel ministry look like? Like, whatever God is calling you to do specifically, I want you to have some markers from the scriptures here that tell us what does faithful gospel ministry look like. And then I want us to ask, what, what kind of fruit of maturity should we be asking to see or hoping to see or expecting to see as we're faithful? That's where we're going. Make sense? Ready to rock? Okay, let's do this. Gospel ministry, the first mark gospel ministry is to suffer well. Supper well. Look back at verse 24 with me. Paul says this audacious phrase. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We could probably spend the next half hour just talking about that phrase. It's like, seriously, Paul? 
you rejoice in your sufferings. Where, where I read this, right, and in my flesh, I had this degree of suspicion at first where I'm like, he's faking it. There's no way he's really rejoicing in his sufferings. Does anybody do that? Have you ever been the person who um, you sort of figured out what maturity looked like and then you said, I'm just going to act like that or I'm going to say that stuff or I'm going to do that stuff? That was so much the tendency of my flesh. But right here with Paul, that's not the case. His heart is actually in the depth, in the deepest parts of who he is, is going, I find deep joy in suffering because I know it's for you. And I know it's for the glory of God. I mean, we can read a statement like this and our sort of, uh, our toxic positivity alarm bells go off where we're like, oh, Paul, you're just, you're trying to make a good thing out of a really bad situation. Don't do that. That's not what's happening right here. Paul believes in his guts what he just called them to believe in the paragraph before our text. Like Jesus has become so glorious to him, so big to him that everything, even imprisonment, right? He's under house arrest writing this letter to the church at Colossae. Intense suffering, all of that stuff, it just seems small in comparison to Jesus. You need to remember this this morning, New City. If you want to suffer well in ministry, you got to keep your eyes on Jesus. If Jesus is small and everything else is big, you know what's going to happen? You are going to absolutely burn yourself into oblivion. Nobody can handle that. Like all the difficulty that you're going to face in standing for Jesus in our day, that is way too hard to do unless your eyes are fixed on the king. That's it. Notice it says that Paul rejoices in suffering for their sake. Like he sees, um, he sees he's going, okay, I'm in prison. It's giving me the space to write this letter to encourage the church. It's for their sake. It's for their benefit that I'm in prison. He's always looking like the enemy thinks he has him on the ropes and he's using the ropes to bring about gospel ends. That's what God's doing through his life. We get an even deeper sense of what he means in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. What's weird here to me is that Paul says, Hey, I'm suffering for you. Suffering for you. Why, why that's weird to me? <laughs> is because when he suffers, does it actually keep the Colossians from experiencing suffering? No. They're still gonna suffer, they're still gonna go through difficulty, it's still gonna be hard. But get this, he's saying he's suffering for them because he's saying, me suffering well is meant to encourage you to suffer well too. He's saying, guys, we're in this together. We may be experiencing different suffering, but we are both suffering for the Lord's sake. And in that sense, we are together in this. See, my friend, as you get out into gospel ministry, as you try to do the thing God has put in front of you to do, you will be tempted to believe that you are alone in your suffering because people aren't in the specific trial with you. 
You're going to get in a hard situation where you're serving another person and you're going, where is everybody else while I'm out here taking it on the chin? Like, are they, are they just back at HQ, like eating, eating well, sleeping good, and I'm out here suffering for the Lord? Like, man, why do I have it so much harder than everybody else? I want to just speak some gospel hope over you this morning. Your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world, and get this, in our church, suffer in solidarity with you. Not because they're experiencing the same suffering that you're experiencing. No, 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 they're not. But they're experiencing their own suffering. And as we each suffer with Christ, guess what? We are standing next to each other. We suffer separately together. That's what the gospel does. So next time, my friend, you experience suffering and you are tempted to believe it is just me out here, don't buy it. Paul knew better. It wasn't just him and it wasn't just them. God wants us to know this morning that as we suffer well in ministry, we are not alone. That's just the truth. Look what he says in the end of verse 24. He says, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. This seems like a bold statement, doesn't it? Like somebody in our village pointed out this week, they're like, man, to say Christ is lacking anything, like, isn't that almost blasphemous? It sounds almost blasphemous until you get your mind around what he's actually saying here. The Greek for the word afflictions right here is the word lipsion, which is a word that's never used to describe the sufferings of Christ on the cross. It's a different word here. Based on that and really everything else Paul in the New Testament says about Jesus, we know that he is not saying the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross isn't enough. So we need to do more. That is not what this verse is teaching us. There are a couple of ways that commentators take this to mean or exactly the sense of what Paul is getting. But after spending the week in study, I want to submit to you what I think is the best reading of this text, and I want you to submit that to the Lord. I think Paul is saying that he is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is saying Christ hasn't finished suffering for his people because he is currently suffering with them. Like how are there still more afflictions for Christ to face? Every time his people face affliction, guess what? He's in it. He's in it. When you suffer, Christ is suffering. I mean, that's really good news. We aren't just in solidarity with one another, though we are. Christ is in solidarity with us in the suffering. Like think back in Acts chapter 9 when Paul is converted to Christianity. He is literally on horseback riding down the road, going to persecute the church of God. He's trying to stamp out the Christian movement. And when Jesus kicks him off his horse and he lands on the ground, you know what Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like think how deeply Jesus identifies with the sufferings of his people. What does suffering well have to do with your ministry? My friends, few things 
will teach others the power of Christ like suffering well in front of them. Whether it's big or small, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or it's just a really hard day, whatever the suffering, whatever the difficulty, when we suffer, our flesh is going to tell us to go hide away and to isolate from everybody else and just put our heads down until the clouds clear. But Christ says when you suffer and you cling to God and you fight for belief and you persevere and you do that in front of these friends in your community, you know what it'll do? It will encourage and mature them. That's what Paul believed. That's what I think he's inviting us to believe today. Can I ask you this morning, who's watching you struggle? Like, do you think that helping people grow into maturity just looks like you showing them what the finished product looked like? Or is it actually inviting them into the wrestle and the struggle? Your struggle and suffering, my friends, might end up being some of the most impactful ministry you do. A couple of years ago, there's a guy named um, Nabil Qureshi. He, uh, he wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And he was on this like religious journey, came from a Muslim background, and he came to Christ, came to believe the gospel. And then as he started to grow and learn, he became an evangelist for the gospel, going and sharing with people that he could, uh, defending the faith, and had this beautiful young family, kids, young wife. Um, and at 34 years old on YouTube, he launches um, the first of his vlog series where he says, well, I just went to the doctor and I found out that I have stomach cancer and it doesn't look good. And so this is a guy with a very public platform. So he kind of does this in a very public way. There's something like 50 vlogs after this where he's just walking day in and day out. And he's, he's in a hospital bed and he's teaching Jesus um, how Jesus is superior to Allah. And he's like giving defense for the Christian faith as you see his body begin to wither away from this cancer. He is struggling with the, um, the presumed loss of not getting to watch his children grow up and he's clinging to Christ. And then something like 50 vlogs in, he says, he looks like he's, he's worn to paper thin. Cancer has ravaged his body. And he's sitting there and he's going, hey, we're, we're praying for the miraculous. We're praying, we're asking God to heal me. But I want you to know this. We bring the gospel of love to a people of hatred. And so regardless of people hating us, we come in love. I, I commend you, I challenge you to love these people the way that Jesus has loved them. And he says, I'm sure I'll talk to you very soon. Goodbye. And that's it. He goes to be with Jesus at that moment. Those are the last public words that he's ever recorded. And our friend Nabil is with Jesus right now. And he said, the worst suffering of my life is not going to be a notch in the enemy's win column. He says, the worst suffering of my life will be a testament to how sure and how steadying Jesus is to people who lean on him. My friends, Nabil has a much larger public ministry than any of us, but whether two people or 2,000 people are watching, suffering well 
teaches people the unbelievable worth and hope of Jesus. Faithful gospel ministry suffers well. That's first. But there's more here. Suffer well, number two, proclaim fully. Proclaim fully. Look at verse 25 in the text. It says, see, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Skip ahead in verse 28 uh, with me for just a minute. It says, him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul cannot think about gospel ministry to these people without saying, I need to do everything I can to make the word of God fully known to these people. We'll see the content of what he's talking about in the next point, but, but right now I just want you to notice He proclaims Christ. He believes by proclaiming Jesus, lifting Jesus up with clarity, he believes that's actually the power for transformation for these people. Nothing else. He's sort of like, uh, you've heard the story, if you take an American history, you know the story of Paul Revere, right? He gets on his horse and what does he do? He runs down the street and goes, the British are coming, the British are coming. I'm actually sorry if you're British in the room. It's all water under the bridge. We're all good with all of it, okay? I hope, is there hard feelings toward it? We can talk later. (laughs) Paul Revere goes out heralding. This is happening, right? And that's what Paul is doing. He's going out, he's proclaiming the good news of Christ. He says he's warning them. He's saying, hey, go this way. There's danger over there. Teaching with wisdom. He's patiently explaining the truths of the gospel. It's this full proclamation. I want you to understand the word. I want you to be challenged by the word. Um, I want you to be transformed by the word. My friends, you can't have effective gospel ministry without the word. You just can't. See, if you were to look, you can find this really in every generation of church history, but I'll speak specifically to ours. In the last 50 to 100 years, there's been a trend that says something like, hey, we should just avoid the tough subjects that the Bible speaks to. Because that's going to just draw more people in. More people can connect with it if we don't talk about the the difficult stuff. But you know what happened when we started to do that? We began normalizing immaturity. Because people weren't given any roots to actually stand in the gospel when things got difficult. And as a result, a couple of generations have been departing the faith in droves. Like, you need to know if you're even in the room this morning, you're a college student, like you are running against the grain of your culture. Hey, praise God. Praise God. That's a beautiful thing. But my friends, when it comes to fully proclaiming the gospel and and expounding the word to other people, some of the simplest yet most profound ministry that you will do is to simply not be embarrassed by the Bible. It's that simple. Don't you feel the pull, though? 
like when you get in a conversation and like sexual ethics or gender and sexuality or um, immigration reform or all these sort of hot button topics come up and you start to think about how as you're thinking as a Christian, you're going, uh, Jesus doesn't align with that, but he's also going to offend these people. He's actually equal opportunity offender. He's going to offend everybody a little bit. You feel your blood pressure start to go up. And by being embarrassed by the Bible and you try to sort of, you're like, I'm going to help Jesus and be his PR rep a little bit. I'm going to sort of round the corners off of the stuff that he says. Listen, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need it. Like for us as the people of God to be able to stand and say, hey, this is really good news that God has a design for our gender and our sexuality. God instructs us um, to order our lives in particular ways. God, um, God um, wires the universe to work in all ways. My friends, if we keep being afraid that the Bible will scare people off, and so it makes us like, ah, let's just avoid the stuff that's difficult, we are actually hamstringing the next generation of disciples. We're, we are discipling them in leaving the faith. This isn't the calling. In your ministry, you are called to proclaim the word of God fully. You lack courage? I'd be lying if I told you there were moments that I'm, I'm reading a text and going, I really gotta get up and say that out loud in front of a room full of people. This is gonna go great. <laughs> we're thinking what, what happens if uh, if this is a soundbite taken out of context and somebody posts it on the internet, yeah. right? Whether you feel that if you're gonna stand in front of a room of people or you're just sitting at Starbucks with a friend and you feel all that fear rise up inside of you, right at that razor's edge of fear and courage, this is what's so great about Jesus. He loves to get, give courage to people who wanna say yes to him. He loves to do it. Are you going, I don't know if I'd have the courage to do that? Maybe you wouldn't. Jesus has plenty of it. Yeah. And he's really willing to share. Proclaim fully. That's the mark of gospel ministry. So whatever, whatever it is that God's called you to do, has he called you to um, work at a business in town? Yeah, proclaim fully as you're talking about the Bible. Don't, don't give in to the spirit of embarrassment. Just don't do it. Last thing we see about gospel ministry in this text, toil dependently. Somebody pointed out in our group this week, very insightfully, I think, that toil is usually used with a negative connotation, right? You think of toil, it's like a waste of time or something. But here Paul is using it in a very positive connotation. Verse 29, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul is energized in ministry. Like he's energized. To use more modern language, he is passionate about it. He's serious about it. He's focused. <clears throat> and man, if you know, if you try to live out the ministry that God has for you for very long, um, passions are going to rise and fall. Yeah. 
right? Um, I can think of times in the life of New City where it's like, we're, we're charging the gates of hell with a water pistol, man. Like, let's go. Let's, let's get after it. And then there are other moments where it's like, okay, just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. The, the passion or the intensity of the ministry calling can change. But here's what's beautiful. In all of that up and down of life and how fickle our emotions are this way or that way, Paul tells us where his energy to toil comes from. You notice? All his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know what he's talking about there, right? Jesus. It's the energy of Christ working through me. This should be really good news and really disappointing news. You cannot muster this kind of passion and action. That's good news and bad news. One, because some of you have been trying to really do that and you're just exhausted. But gosh, it's also really good news because it means that the thing that you need that you can't work up on your own, Christ gladly supplies. It gets to be yours. My friends, this, this energy that you need to toil, um, it's, it's meant to be out of dependence. This is exactly the kind of thing that Christ loves to give his ministers. Like, are you tired? Are you burned out? Are you a little jaded toward people? Are you a little bit over it? Are you a little bit like, I just want to put the blinders on and sort of do my own thing? If that's you this morning, I want you to know, you can run to the fountain of living water and find more help than you could ever want. Jesus wants you to be dependent on him. It is no burden to Christ for you to depend on him. Friend, he is energized by your need. So stop toiling independently. Stop trying to work this thing out out of your your own strength. Instead, go, Jesus, I, I need things that I don't have. See, there was a, a lot of times in my life especially very early in leadership where I would go, I would observe people around me and go, that's what maturity looks like. And so I'm going to do that and I'm going to act like that. <coughs> and in one sense, that's good. I'm trying to model, but, but here's what happened. On, out, on the outside, I was acting one way, but on the inside, my heart hadn't actually caught up to my behaviors. So I was very tired. I was very tired and I was sort of like, it's like you're trying to play a character that you aren't yet. You know that feeling? Yeah. And so, man, it's been this journey of going, Jesus, what if I actually just admit my immaturity where it is? And I, I just ask your help. I need help with this. It's, cha- it's changed the game for me. Toil dependently. So, Three things here from the text that we see the sort of characterized gospel ministry, right? Um, going back, suffer well, proclaim fully, toil dependently. We got, a, we got a picture of what the ministry looks like. Those, those should undergird however you're doing gospel ministry. But then 
we have to ask the question, what should we pray, or dare I say, what should we expect to see as we minister to other people? How does Paul describe the maturity that he says is so important? I think there's two ways in the text. He says, one, gospel maturity is when somebody is changed by the word. And number two, they're firm in their faith. Two things, changed by the word, firm in their faith. Look um, with me in verse 25 again. We're going to read 25 through 27. It says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like Man, there he is. He's He's expounding the gospel to these people. When he, he uses that word, he keeps saying mystery. There's a mystery here. He's, he's referring to a specific mystery that the gospel is making fully known. It's the mystery that God was going to make one global family through Jesus. See, uh, in, in this church, there were um, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, so people who had um, come to faith in Christ after having been part of the Jewish community and having followed the laws and they knew the Old Testament. Then you've got this other group of Gentile Christians who have no framework for the law. And when they're coming in and sort of like, they don't know the house rules of Judaism, they're coming in eating a bacon sandwich and there's no, they don't, they don't know that why the other people would have a problem with that. Can you see how there would be tension in that? Like, what were the no-nos in your house, right? Was it like, we don't wear our shoes in the house or something like that? In my, in my house, it was, you don't scrape the fork on the teeth because my sister hated it. And so, of course, eight-year-old Nick is like, shing, 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 like he just wants to do it, right? There are these spoken and unspoken ways about how we interact in a household. And so when you've got this one global family these early Jewish Christians, they wouldn't have been surprised that God would save the Gentiles. They knew that God was gracious, but they would have been surprised saying, now we're all becoming one family in this thing. It would have brought some difficulties, some tensions. Friends, here's why Paul refers to it as a mystery. The gospel is so powerful that it doesn't merely save diverse groups of people. It makes those groups of people family. That's powerful. Like across backgrounds, across traditions, Paul, Paul believes so strongly that the word of God would change the hearts of these particular church members who were struggling to invite these Gentile Christians in. He's like, all I gotta do is Keep laying Jesus before you. I just got to keep proclaiming the word and guess what's going to happen? Heart transformation. See, that's the first mark of gospel maturity, friend, is somebody who hears the word of God and with faith and repentance responds to it. Like, do you hear the word and respond to it? Or is it um, like James says, who, who looks in a mirror and then immediately walks away and forget their own face. That's, that's what it's like to hear the word of God and not respond to it and, and walk away from it. 
first mark of gospel maturity is someone who is changed by the word. It's when your preferences and your understanding get submitted to the word of God. Like here's a question that helps you recognize, is this actually going on in my heart yet? When you and the Bible disagree, who wins? And what I'm not saying is you can't wrestle or you can't go, what does this actually mean? No, 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 you should wrestle with the word of God. But what gets to be your final authority in practice? What gets to say, this is what maturity looks like? This is what human flourishing looks like? Be changed by the word. Man, I think this is worth saying. I didn't share this in the first service, but there have been multiple times in my life where I have like, I've been disciplined to read the word of God, which is such, it's such a benefit, right? To just get your head in the book. But I'll say this, there were a lot of seasons in my life where I read the word of God and like, I didn't take it to heart, just sort of bounced off of me. The change was when I started reading the Bible in community with my friends. I started like wrestling through this stuff. And then we start spending time together and we're like, hey, we're reading this same stuff. What is God saying in his word? And how's he calling us to respond? And then when you show up to the table next time, you go, did you respond? And you're like, well, no, I just thought about responding. It's like, well, why aren't you responding to the word of God? You've got somebody who lovingly kind of holds your feet to the fire and says, hey, we're trying to submit ourselves to the word of God. Why do you keep resisting? Like, <laughs> So community helps. I think that's part of Paul's image in this text. So, um, okay, last thing. Last thing, the last mark of maturity is someone who is firm in the faith. Firm in the faith. I want you to look, we're going to read in chapters 2, uh, verse 2 through 5. He says that their hearts, as this ministry struggles for them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you, in whom are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Like there, Paul, again, he's putting Jesus right back in the center of the equation. He's saying, all wisdom, all knowledge, all the treasures that you need for the Christian life are found in him And he centers everything around that. He says, if you get tethered to Jesus, if you go deep into him, it's going to grow you firm in the actual faith. He describes like the the kind of faith, the kind of maturity that he wants to see in them. He says um, that you might be knit together in love. Like I want you guys to actually care about each other, he says. That you might be like a, a, a garment that it can't be torn apart without actual ripping. I want you to be connected, care, meet one another's needs. He says, I want you to fully have assurance of who Christ is. I don't want somebody to be able to come along and say, um, yeah, I've got some teaching about Jesus here without you going, wait, that doesn't sound quite right. 
Like, I want you to know what's real. Like, he doesn't want them to be deluded by plausible arguments against the gospel. In all the things that he teaches about firmness in the faith right here, I put together just a little, I I want us to do a little maturity assessment together. This isn't meant to shame us, okay? This is meant to just let us know, like, hey, where are we at? This isn't everything there is about Christian maturity, but these are just a couple. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to read a statement in your journal or on your phone or something. I want you to just give a green, a yellow, or a red light to the statement. Green light is like, hey, God is like at work in this in my life. This is, this is growing. It's going good. Yellow is like, man, we got, we got some work to do, Okay. And then red is like, what is that? Like, I've never heard of that, okay? I'm just gonna read a couple of statements here. I want you to just green, yellow, red, just to try to bring some awareness to where where each of us are at. Number one, I regularly feel encouraged and challenged by God's word. Green, yellow, red. I can name my sin struggles and I regularly run to Christ in my failures. I feel securely attached to the people in my church community. From the heart, I joyfully serve others who are in need. I have a deep sense of clarity on who Jesus is and what he has done. Last one. I can discern truth from error when it comes to the essentials of Christianity. Like I said, this isn't everything that is entailed in Christian maturity, but I just want to ask, how'd it it go? Like, where do you see alarm bells sort of going on? Where are there places in your maturity this morning that Jesus wants to invite you into some more firmness in your faith? What if you just took that assessment and you're going, shoot, I knew I wasn't any good at this. And you've got red light after red light. You've got all this brokenness. Here's what's amazing about the gospel this morning, my friends. The gospel of Jesus is so powerful that there is literally not a single failure, a single immaturity, a single doubt that you do not bring to him in faith that he won't joyfully forgive. Not a one. When you bring your immaturities and failures to Jesus, he loves to cover them and get this, grow them. He says, let's work on this together. Step into this. Raphael, you go ahead and come up. I'm almost done here, my friends. See, as we talk a lot today about ministry, right, that you have a a purpose from God that he wants you to walk out in your life. And as we talk about maturity, you could easily leave here and go, okay, here's the list of all of the, all the things I need to do today. I got to grow in maturity. I got, I got to figure out my ministry. And listen, God wants us to grow in maturity. He wants us to discern our ministry, but I need you to hear me real clearly this morning, friends. The good news of the gospel says that God's delight in you is not measured by your maturity. It's measured by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
The reason you are forgiven is not because you got more mature. And he went, oh, there's growth here. Okay, well, I'll forgive this person. No, no, no. You are forgiven because a savior stretched out his arm and gave up his breath to redeem you. The reason you can become mature is because he took all the judgment for your immaturities and failings. See, some of us, you might be realizing this morning that the reason you are stuck in immaturity in your faith is because you are giving ministry, like you're trying to minister to other people, but you're not receiving the ministry of anybody else. You're not just receiving it. And my friend, today is the day to let somebody else in. Like you need a Paul, you need a friend. So dare I say it, maybe find somebody that you've gotten to know a little bit who their, their walk with Jesus looks like, man, I would love to have something even marginally like that. And you go, hey, will you let me watch you follow Jesus? I don't know how to do this. You don't have to pretend to be more mature than you are. Nobody wants that for you. If you come in here week after week and you pretend that you're further along than you are, you know what that's a recipe for? Never growing and never being known by anybody and never being loved. Because friend, you're playing a character that you are not. You don't have to do that. Some of us are sitting on the sidelines and we're going, I can't minister to other people because I'm, I'm afraid. I feel like I'm not qualified. I mean, if that's you, maybe you're going like, the only thing I know is the gospel. Guess what? Your ministry to other people is to tell them the one thing you know. <laughs> to look at somebody else's life and say, hey, I don't, that sounds like a lot. I don't know how to make sense of any of that but Jesus has changed my life. Let me just tell you about him. And there are some of us still in the room today who are stuck in spiritual immaturity and we're spinning the wheels simply because we don't actually have the spirit of God inside of us. Like you're trying to do Christian things without Christ. You don't have him yet. He has not reconciled you to the Father. And that means today is the day of salvation, my friend. It means today you believe the gospel. You believe um, that Jesus lived the perfect life you couldn't live but should have lived. Jesus died the death you should have died. And Jesus rose resurrection, the resurrection that he's willing to share with all who place their faith and hope in him. Believe the gospel. Receive his spirit. Stop trying to rescue yourself from your immaturity. Just admit you can't rescue yourself. It's as simple as that. Last thing, my friends. I want you to imagine like Champaign-Urbana 200 years from now. As there are mature disciples in every sphere of influence in every neighborhood and every place who have a sense of the ministry that God has called them to. Like, y'all, it's our turn. 
It's our turn. There is no imagination that contain what God might do through a group of people who are saying, we want to pursue gospel maturity, but we're going to do it by ministering to one another. I hope we take him up on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I just know that some of us feel stuck. We don't know what... We don't know what our ministry is. We don't know what our contribution is. I mean, Jesus, I just pray right now you would reveal the specific people that you want them to love or serve, care for. Show them the ways that you have gifted them to love other people, serve other people. And God, we pray that you just grow us into deepening maturity. We want to actually grow. We don't just want to look better. We want to actually, from the heart, grow. Holy Spirit, do your good work today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, we want to invite you to respond to the word today. Like today, in this moment, you get to practice what we just talked about in the sermon. Responding to God's word. And so today, my friend, I want to invite you to ask the Lord, like, God, what... How do you want me to respond to this? Before we take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, I actually want you to, it's biblical and right practice to search your heart, to open your heart before God and say, God, is there any unconfessed sin in me? Are there any relationships in the room that are broken that I need to make right? Is there anything keeping me from communing deeply with you in the Lord's Supper? And then friends, as as we prepare our hearts, we come to the Lord's table here. If you are a follower of Jesus today, we welcome you to the table. You're going to find bread that represents the broken body of the Lord. You're going to find a cup that represents his broken blood. And as you take it today, I want you to remember, Jesus didn't just die in the abstract. Jesus died for my immaturities, my failings, my my failings, my faults. Confess that to him. Experience the gratitude. Feel the love of the gospel as you take the Lord's Supper today. Remember that he's coming back. And then finally, my friends, we rehearse the coming day when the journey toward maturity will be in and we we will be presented, as the scriptures say, um, blameless before Christ. The, The good work that's begun in us will have been completed and we will be with him in glory the struggle, the longing for maturity won't be there anymore. That day's coming. So I want us to sing like it's already true. New City, I love you. I love being your pastor. Respond when you're ready.